Hurstwick Podcast, Episode 5. Welcome to the Hurstwick Podcast, the show where we discuss all things Viking. I am your host, John Davis. Our guest today is Jeff Pringle. Jeff practices bladesmithing and blacksmithing out of Oakland, California, and he's done a great deal of research and has many insights into Viking Age blade making. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Also with us tonight are uh, Dr. William Short, uh, manager of Hurstwick LLC. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking to Jeff. And finally, we have Barbara Wechter of Wechter Arms, also a bladesmith and blacksmith. And Barbara is an instructor at Hurstwick and a purveyor of fine training weapons. Welcome back, Barbara. Thank you. I'm uh, very excited to participate in this tonight. Dr. Short, why don't you start us off? Jeff, you have done many amazing things with Viking Age weapons and, and other areas of research related to Viking Age, and I'm sure we will get into those later in this presentation. But one place I'd like to start is what got you interested in all of this? You know, how did this start? What, what got you interested in the Vikings and in the Viking weapons and Viking jewelry and the other Viking products? To be completely frank, uh, my mom was a librarian and got me reading very early. And when I was a wee lad in the, you know, I don't know, eight years old or whatever range, uh, she was feeding me all the classics of boys' literature, uh, like uh, Ivanhoe and the Morta Arthur and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And that sort of got me interested in medieval stuff in general and swords in particular. And uh, before I even knew it, you know, I was, I was just a... <laughs> little kid reading uh, adventure novels, basically. Um, but they were the right adventure novels. As my life went on, I uh, discovered that I loved creating things out of stuff. And somehow those two things came together, and I started really exploring the sword as a uh, significant object and a functional tool. And then a long while later, after I'd been messing around with this stuff, I discovered that I didn't really enjoy uh, the homogenization of world culture all that much. And that made me start looking at pre-industrial craft processes a little more intensely so that, you know, I started making my own material so that I could more adequately understand what those pre-industrial craftspeople were working with and what their mindset was. Now, you've, you've done some very deep research into Viking Age weapons, and I hope we'll talk more about that later in the presentation. But something I've always been curious about, you know, what, was there some particular secret of the Viking Age bladesmith that was hardest for you to figure out, or the most challenging, or, or uh, the most uh, time-consuming, or the, the most rewarding for you? And if so, how did you solve it? What, what steps did you go through to finally figure out the answer? Uh, so when I started trying to delve into what it was actually like to be a craftsperson in the Viking Age, there was virtually zero information out there. And so like one of the harder parts was figuring out how to smelt my own iron and 
it took, uh, I would say, at least three years of failed attempts, uh, at least every couple of months before I started getting material. Nowadays, there's there's some really good information out there about how to smelt iron ore into iron. But uh, when I was trying to figure it out, there wasn't a lot. Uh, the learning curve was very steep. Uh, so that's probably the, the most difficult part. A lot of the other stuff that I've figured out, uh, you can stare very intently at artifacts and get a feeling for what the craftsman was trying to achieve. But it's much more direct. Uh, when I was trying to figure out iron smelting, it was not that direct at all. <laughs> yes. So may I ask, are there any secrets of what I would call Viking Age bladesmithing, but I mean the bigger picture, any aspects of this Viking Age craft that still remain elusive, that there's something that really puzzles you that you haven't been able to figure out yet? Uh, yes, of course. Every time I look at an artifact, I, I notice something that hasn't caught my attention before. Like if you really look at the artifact, there's, you know, depending on how you squint your eyes, you can find some aspect of the, the craft that has not been addressed in the modern age. Can you give an example of something you've looked at recently where you noticed that? I'm very curious to, to, to know a little more specifics. For example, over the course of the Viking Age, there was an evolution in how hilts were decorated. Like coming out of the Bendel era, hilts were ridiculously ornate gold things that were actually probably kind of fragile things considered they were uh i'm sure they were used but they there was certainly a uh, huge status component as well and that's over the course of the viking age they got a lot more business-like utilitarian maybe towards the end um so like over the course of the viking age sword hilt went from being a little bit too ornate to be truly functional uh, to being uh, completely utilitarian and not all that interesting. Mm. And so I have explored first two thirds of that. And right now I'm, I'm exploring the last third of that time span uh, where they shifted from more of an inlaid hilt to an overlaid hilt. It's a completely different way of decorating a hilt it's still decorated but you use less precious metals and well it probably doesn't last as long <laughs> so uh yeah currently i'm looking into how how that shift happened and what it means to be a craftsperson who is trying to a decorate something and b keep it from rusting um, which are both things that go on with this sort of decoration like it's not just there to make it pretty it's also there to keep the steel from rough which is always a struggle in this oxygen rich environment that we live in. <laughs> as long as we're on the uh, topic of looking at uh, viking age artifacts i uh, wanted to know when you first look at an artifact like what are the first things that you're looking for how are you approaching uh, dissecting these things and trying to figure out how they're made uh, the first thing that I am looking at are overall outlines, weights, and proportions, because all of that stuff makes sense if you use sword, as you guys probably know. But if you get that stuff wrong, A, the sword doesn't work well, and B, it doesn't look like 
anything like uh, what the artifacts were. So when I first approach an artifact, I'm appreciating the overall proportions of it. Especially in America, we don't get to see a whole lot of Viking Age swords in museums. So anytime you go to the third dimension, so it's mm-hmm. not a picture of a sword in a book, you can actually look around it and, and see how wide that guard is, see how the pommel and the guard relate to one another. All that kind of stuff is, is what I'm first looking for. And then working off of that, start really drilling down into how that object was made. I am looking for traces of the craftsman's hand. What indications are left in the artifact of how the guy was trying to, or probably guy, but maybe girl, you know, what he was aiming for and how he was getting there. You know, especially with uh, cremation burials, which were common in the Viking Age, you can occasionally see the last stroke of the file that the craftsman honed full of that spear preserved in the uh, glodeskal, the the iron oxide from the cremation. Hmm. And so first it's all shape and proportion, then it's weight, some balance, and then it's like, okay, so how was he using his file and how did that affect the final shape of the object? So I'll jump in here if I may. Um, on that note, uh, looking for traces of the craftsman's hands. Something I've been always been curious about is, you know, what did a Viking Age smithy look like and what tools did the smith have available to him and so on? And the reason I ask that, there's some archaeology coming out on Viking Age smithies. So we have a sense of the space and there's some information about the tools available. So we have some sense of the tools. I'm just wondering what challenges, what challenges you think a Viking Age Smith might have had given the limitations he had available? It, it changes over the course of the Viking period because uh, at the start of the Viking period, things were way more individual, well, except in the Frankish Empire, which the Vikings were obviously trading with and snagging stuff from. <laughs> but in general, if you take all of Scandinavia and most of Europe, as a generalization, the initial obstacles that they had to deal with were in, inconsistent metal sources and the fact that you uh, couldn't you know, just forge a sword out of a chunk of metal that you got from Mr. Metal Guy down the street. That morphs over the course of the Viking Age to where by the end of the Viking Age into the Crusader era, trade routes were probably improved Definitely smelting technologies were improved so that you could just have a chunk of metal and make a sword out of it uh, from mm-hmm. the get-go. But mm-hmm. earlier on, um, you had to take several pieces of metal from several sources or just one source on multiple occasions and weld them together into a piece of metal that was clean enough and big enough to make a sword from or axe for a spear. Mm-hmm. I was also curious, uh, and I'm not quite sure how to put this, so please excuse me, Jeff. Um, It seems like the archaeological finds that I am most familiar with of Viking Age smithies are extremely tiny. Their their physical space is small, and I guess that was a limitation, or that's just the way it was, or it didn't need to be any bigger for the kind of work they were doing. 
Right. A smithy does not have to be big. And turns out you don't have to have a whole lot of tooling either. You do need some tooling, especially if you're doing axes or spears as opposed to swords. The space required is, you know, it's a few feet, really. And uh, so the, the, the technology that most Viking smiths in Scandinavia were working with was very small fire, a very small anvil. If they're lucky, they had a drift or two. It's amazing what you can get accomplished with uh, virtually zero materials. Jim Austin and I out here have uh, looked into that a bit, um, like, you know, using nothing but medieval-sized or Viking-sized anvils. How much can you get done? Like, how much more efficient is it if you have a 500-pound anvil? But, like, virtually every smith find from the Viking Age, you're looking at three or four pounds or five, maybe, Mm -hmm. for the anvil. But... That actually doesn't matter all that much. You can get an awful lot done with that small of an equipment. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's, that's puzzling me, as you know, Jeff and Barbara especially knows, I'm no smith, but I'm always puzzled by the small size of the fire that seems to be available to these smiths. That's not a problem either? Um, no. In general, um, even if you're forging something that's like uh, you know two and a half or three foot long sword, you are only working small sections of it at once. Like you, the only time you need to heat the whole damn thing up is during heat treating. There's a fair amount of anecdotal evidence from, say, uh, Japanese traditional Japanese swordsmiths that uh, running a uh, a sword back and forth through a small fire, you can get it to the right temperature to do heat treating with. Um, okay. It's a pain in the butt and it's very tiring, but uh, it does work. Uh, okay. So, yeah. And in general, when you're, uh, even if you're forging a sword, you don't want to heat more than, say, six inches of length up at a time because you just, you lose control. Okay. So, small fires, uh, small smithies, yeah, totally understandable now jeff i understand you've worked on some pretty uh pretty astonishing projects um but they've mostly been low profile projects so for example no tv specials or necessarily youtube series or anything like that um but uh can you tell us about some of these projects sure sure probably the the most remarkable project i was involved in was uh uh, fabricating a matching cross guard for a, uh, a Swedish sword owned by a private collector uh, that somehow had lost its cross guard last thousand years somewhere. <laughs> and so I uh, studied the the pommel and the upper guard and figured out how the, that was decorated and then fabricated a matching cross guard and did a very specific inlay to match what was going on, what was left of what was going on on the uh, pommel and the uh, upper guard. Aside from that, I have been conserving artifacts as uh, just something to do because I like them uh, and uh, (laughs) I can learn a lot from them. Uh, And if you're doing conservation on a uh, Viking Age uh, antiquity, um, you can figure out a lot about why they did things and how they did them. 
So I'm uh, Jeff. I'm not going to let you get away without saying more about that replacement tilt for the the sword in the private collection. Yeah, um, wasn't more to it than that. Is more about the project. So uh, the interesting thing about this sword is there was a uh, an article in Sweden, which is available online somewhere, where some guy found this sword and sent it to the museum, and they conserved it and they gave it back to the guy, and then. It cycled through uh, private ownership until it ended up in the United States. And uh, there's actually a, a great page on hurstwick.com uh, <laughs> describing how I did the inlay. But at, at that point, nobody had really successfully replicated this biking technique, which was super common um, in the you know 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. And it was just something I really wanted to understand. It actually took me about six months to nail the technique. And then I was just blessed to be able to do a matching cross guard for uh, this pommel. This is such a fascinating project and it shows a skill level that is hard to fathom because it requires twisting these precious metal wires and the twists and all these wires has to be the same so that the, the pattern matches up. It shows an in, incredible level of control. How do you do that? It's a really interesting technique and it's like ridiculously common on Viking Age hilts. The technique basically requires you to uh, twist copper and silver wires to the left and to the right, you know, two separate coils and then draw them down uh, and then twist them tight. As you draw it down, the twist extends. So there's this like multi-stage process where you're making it skinnier and then twisting it tighter and then making it skinnier and then twisting it tighter. And you have to sort of arrive at the same rate of twist and the same diameter with both the left hand and the right hand twists. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, you can get it into the ballpark uh, and then sort of individually adjust things while you're doing the inlay. But then when you're doing the inlay, of course, you're hammering down on the wire and that stretches it. So you got to take that into account. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a little complicated. And I'm just uh, really amazed that they were able to do this a thousand years ago um, with you know, draw plates that they probably made themselves to draw the wire down. The, yeah. the wire gets ridiculously fine on a lot of Viking Age hilts. It's, uh, you know, what modern jewelers might call 30 gauge. And the, the repeat on the uh, inlay is, you know, as many as 20 per centimeter. Mm -hmm. No, that. I'm misremembering. There's a good page on Hurstwick. You can. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really good uh, description of the process. Regardless, effect is striking both in the original and in the reproduction. It's it's really amazing work, and it creates a beautiful, beautiful pattern. And uh, we'll have uh, pictures of that and links to those articles on our on our site. It's uh, on on these swords that they made back in the. Back in the good old days, uh, they were spending virtually as much time on the hilt as on the blade itself. And mm -hmm. our current culture um, doesn't really 
doesn't really understand how that can happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jeff, you yeah. said tilt takes as much time as the blade. Do you have a rough estimate of the man hours for each of those in the Viking age? Ah, it's hard to say. Uh, I don't know if I can. I, I don't know if I could nail it down without thinking about it for another six hours. Okay. <laughs> How about if I turn the question on its head? So we have a, a, a specialized bladesmith somewhere, and maybe one of these sword making centers. How many blades did he make in his lifetime? Was it ten? Was it a hundred? Was it a thousand? Um, if that was his career. I bet he could easily do a hundred, assuming a twenty-year career in, in bladesmithing. Once you pass your apprenticeship or whatever, uh, easily two hundred swords over uh, over those twenty years, um, and maybe more. Okay, and that's a much higher number than I would have guessed. So it's it's sort of fascinating speculation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But presumably, a bladesmith in one of these sword-making centers would have a lot of assistance helping him make this all happen. Well, yeah, and uh, so back in the day, there were uh, people who made blades and people who made hilts. And so you'd have places like Birka where uh, they were importing blades and you had an indigenous hilt-making operation going on kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that division of labor uh, definitely allows one to crank out more stuff um, since there aren't that many people interested in delving into this line of research uh we don't have um cutlers and bladesmiths and smelters uh these days anymore and so that slows things down considerably <laughs> okay so one thing we haven't talked about and it's um it it sort of gained the the mythic status of valerian steel from game of thrones that would be the ulfbert blades and uh -huh. there's been a lot of discussion both in the popular media and uh, academics about about these blades and you know we have to assume they're not magic <laughs> we know there's a lot of fakes um but um what is special about these weapons uh, i guess that would depend on which academic you talk to <laughs> in general there's there's <laughs> There's a set of Ulfbert blades, which are signed Ulfbert. So, okay, so over the course of the Viking Age, people went from having to assemble a sword out of, you know, six, seven, eight, twelve bits of metal to get a piece of metal big enough to make a sword from. Towards the end of the Viking Age, the smelting uh, technology had improved enough so that you could just forge a blade out of one chunk of metal. So at that point, for the last like 300 years, everybody had been looking at swords and looking for these patterns from the smith combining these different metals into the blade. Uh -huh. And so there was a uh, association with quality by a visual pattern in the blade. But then smelting improved so that they didn't have to do that anymore. Smiths like Ulfbert and Inglory this is like right at the end of the Viking Age. They were making swords that were every bit as good and probably better than the ones that had gone before, but they didn't have those uh, recognizable patterns on the surface. So they did this wonderful thing where they would just inlay their signature in the blade so that 
when you looked at it, you'd be like, oh, yeah, it is pattern welded. It must be good. And then the Ulfbert firm, uh, apparently it's a firm because they, you know, there's about two or 300 years of uh, Ulfbert with various hilt styles coming out. They had, according to, like, if you, if you read through all the academic articles on these things, there was a certain subset of Ulfberts, which were the high-end ones, which were probably made from imported crucible steel from the Mideast. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a few modern smelters who are uh, trying, I don't know if they're trying to prove it, but they're trying to figure out if it could have been uh, just a better refining process. Um, but basically there's a set of, uh, Viking age swords, uh, which are all labeled Ulfbert. They are made of steel that is higher in carbon and more pure, like less inclusions and that kind of thing than everybody else's. And so, uh, that's why there's some interest in those swords right now. Um, there was also a sort of, um, Kmart version also, also probably authentic Ulfberts from the time, but they were just making making them out of the usual uh, material that everybody had in Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. And then there's the fakes uh, from the time, where mm-hmm. you know they didn't even bother to spell Ulfbert correctly, um, and <laughs> the metal is usually questionable at best. Mm-hmm. So there are these three definite. Uh, Striations in in the whole Ulfbert thing, um, and we don't really know enough about it to say exactly what was going on there. So may I ask, um, in the third category you just described, these swords that are inscribed with Ulfbert with some sort of spelling uh, mm-hmm. that are seem to be made out of inferior stuff. Do you think that they were intentional fakes? Or do you think yes. it was, uh, okay, not factory seconds, it was an intentional fake? Yeah. I, I uh, Well, I've seen metallographical uh, analyses of a bunch of Ulfbert swords, and there was definitely a set where, A, the smith was probably illiterate, and he was just sort of like following on the, the Ulfbert's signature without really understanding what he was doing. And the, the quality of the metal is all over the map. Okay. Um, so, yeah, definitely they were, like, somehow uh, the Ulfbert swords got a reputation, perhaps because of their high-end line uh, was better than most of the other swords around. And almost immediately people started copying them. Some things never change. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm really interested uh, in your process throughout the different things that you do. Um, you talked about how most of these days you do conservation work. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm interested um, in what you do and how you work to conserve these artifacts. Well, most of the artifacts that are floating around out there these days uh, come from at least brackish water and uh, are afflicted with chlorides. So the first thing you have to do is uh, leach the chlorides out of the rust, uh, and then you can deal with the rust um, and stabilize uh, the rest of it. So you need to get rid of the chlorides and then dry it uh, so that it's very, very dry. 
then you only have to worry about chemically bound water, um, which if you do a reasonable job of sealing it afterwards, uh, is not that big of a deal. Uh, so you, yeah, basically it takes a couple of weeks to a month to leach the chlorides out, uh, in pure water, distilled water, um, deionized water in that order, but the water has to be buffered to a high pH to passivate the iron. And, uh, and then once you've, uh, tested and found your chloride component to be like under a part per million or whatever, then you can go through a week long process to dry the thing out and seal it so that no atmospheric moisture can sneak in and fuck you up later. <laughs> and okay, when you are uh, making new works, are you generally trying to copy or recreate things that you found? Are you um, making new things just loosely based on that? And uh, I guess I have questions based off of those uh, that one. So I should let you go there first. Yeah. So um, typically when I'm making something, I am investigating fairly specifically some aspect of construction on an artifact. So I'm not specifically trying to recreate an artifact exactly, but I am trying to understand how some aspect of that artifact was created. Um, so for instance, you know, a particular way that the thousand year old Smith twisted his bars and how many layers he had in those bars um, or um, how that smith managed the transition from the socket to the blade on a spear, hmm. or how he assembled the various bits of iron and steel that he made that axe out of. I'm like, I'm looking at that, and um, just because I'm, uh, I like the way Viking Age artifacts look, I'm usually trying to follow on the overall proportions of the piece or a piece, but I'm perfectly okay with, you know, trying to duplicate a particular metalworking aspect with a particular shape aspect that come from two different artifacts. You know, my, my goal is to be making objects uh, in the same way that they did back in the day. Um, I'm not specifically trying to copy any one particular artifact at all, um, really. Do you make um, sketches or new drawings of what you are trying to do before you set out, or do you just have an idea in mind and just kind of go for it? It depends on the specific project, but typically, yes, I, uh, I sketch things out before I start working. And it sounds like you try to do things as closely as possible to how it was done back then. Are there, is that in general through the whole process, are there certain things that you uh, decide it's not worth it and you just use modern technology for? Uh, so my, my concession to modern technology is using pneumatic uh, air hammers, uh, uh -huh. yep. which is like, instead of having four apprentices with sledgehammer, <laughs> I can just walk over and uh, hit a switch. And, uh, yep. <laughs> But I very specifically do not like a bunch of modern conveniences that are heavily used by other bladesmiths, like belt sanders. I think that uh, you can tell by the shape of the uh, object that you make 
um, if it was shaped on a belt sander versus using files and rocks, which is what they did back in the day. Hammers, mm-hmm. files, rocks. That's my, uh, that's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of following up on some of the things Barbara has, has was asking you about. And, you know, you've talked about some of the things you do as, as you make these objects. And, uh, you know, I, I think you're drawing on years of experience, years of practice, uh, intense research, and on and on and on. I'm just wondering if you have any advice for a smith who is just starting out. There is some words of wisdom that you can give to someone who's just taking the first step on this path. You know, mistakes that you can warn them about or th- things that you can suggest to them? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, not only just uh, Smiths, but anybody who uh, is interested in Viking Age artifacts in general. It's like the most important thing is to look at as many artifacts as closely as possible. Like buy books, go to museums, and memorize those shapes and proportions because uh, it's like invaluable towards understanding what these objects are. And yeah, I, I often give advice to uh, uh, beginner or more beginner e uh, bladesmiths uh, about you know making saxes or swords or whatever. And it's like there's, if, if you're interested in the Viking period, um, the only thing that uh, will help you capture the essence of uh, Vikingness is looking at as many artifacts as you can in as many ways as you can. My first trip to Europe, I spent uh, at least half of it um, going to museums in Oslo and Copenhagen and uh, a couple of other cities and just, you know, sort of spending hours uh, looking through the case going, huh, why don't we have those in America? Oh, that's right. <laughs> but i learned a lot and uh i don't know you can you can you can definitely get a lot from books uh especially if you um um are aggressive in acquiring uh books with good pictures in them but that third dimension is is uh, uh almost never um never dealt with in books Mm-hmm. Oh, and the other, uh, so yeah, look at a lot of artifacts, but then also um, buy every single article written by Yap Yape, the Netherlandish uh, archaeo dude who, uh, for some reason, did really nice drawings of uh, Viking Age swords and spears from the Netherlands um, and also bothered to weigh them and... Uh, illustrate the third dimension and all that kind of stuff so yeah if you can't get the artifacts get the articles by yapia pay and we'll put that name in the in the description so that uh, listeners can find it mm-hmm. all right just a sum up sort of question jeff basically the question is how can people see your work or buy your work do you take commissions or do you sell or how how is it that you distribute what it is um i i typically try to avoid commissions uh and just make things because i want to make them yes and then 
I tend to, if I have too many of those things, then I offer them for sale. Um, okay. And, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm certainly not against commissions in general, but like, you know, me and the commissioner have to sort of like agree that that's going to be an exciting project. Mm -hmm. um, and in general, I just try and make stuff and uh, then uh, distribute that as necessary. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not very good at uh, website, uh, but I will be trying to improve my website a little bit. And uh, um, if I continue down that road, then um, I'll have a items available page. But typically... Um, if anybody wants anything from me, they should email me or call me. <laughs> okay. And we'll put contact information uh, mm -hmm. when we publish this. But I just yep. wanted to, to let our listeners know you have made some amazing works. You have done some very deep research. What you create, at least in my mind, is quite unique. And if our listeners are curious about it or want to know more about it, I just wanted to let them know how how it was possible for them to uh, see your stuff or get your stuff. Uh, I also like to talk about this stuff, uh, not surprisingly. <laughs> it, it takes up an awful lot of my uh, life, uh, and I actually really enjoy talking about this sort of thing, um, either with makers or customers or just people who are generally interested in the Viking period and how... Things got made back then. It's, it's mm -hmm. uh, endlessly fascinating to me, and I can natter on for hours about it. <laughs> All right. This may be a good place to uh, sum up. I just wanted to thank Jeff for sharing his experiences and his knowledge with our listeners. Um, and also, on a slightly different note, thank Jeff for all of his support of Hirschwick. We're truly grateful for uh, sharing your knowledge with us and a lot of what you've done is on the Hurstwick website. Yeah, you guys are uh, by far and away looking into the Viking Age just as exactly as I do on a making sort of scale, uh, but way more, uh, way more general and uh, wonderfully, uh, wonderfully in-depth and, and clear. <laughs> Thank you. The care you guys take with your, uh, your presentation and your investigations is, is amazing. <laughs> All right. Jeff Pringle, bladesmith, blacksmith uh, from Oakland, California. Thank you so much for joining us and taking time out of your busy day to talk with us. Barbara, Bill, as always, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, we're, we're truly grateful. Really appreciate yeah, it. Uh, my pleasure. Um, you guys have an awesome spring and hopefully we will um, discuss further smelting experiments uh, shortly. Yeah, I hope so. Sounds good. Yeah. And that's our show. This is our fifth episode. If you're hearing us for the first time, go back to wherever you found this one and check out some of our earlier episodes. Also, if you'd like to talk with Jeff, head over to wherever you get your podcast and rate us. Or better yet, leave a review. Reviews and ratings really help our podcast show up in searches when folks are looking for Viking-related content. Also, links to Jeff Pringle's website and other resources we mentioned in the show are available on Hurstwick.com. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Jeff Pringle. At Hurstwick, we feel strongly that archaeology, literature, and anthropology are vital to understanding the Viking Age, but nothing beats getting in there, getting your hands covered with soot, and figuring out how this stuff actually works. 
So if a trickster bets his head that you can't make three precious gifts, you'll know what to do. The Hurstwick Podcast was produced by Dr. William Short and Rainier Oskerson. Editing, engineering, music, and hosting are by me, John Davis. The Hurstwick Podcast is a production of Hurstwick LLC. Uh, but that would be the Ulfert. Ulf, bah, no, I can't say it.